0: Open your Bibles to Nehemiah. We've been in Ezra. We're moving to Nehemiah. First chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, and I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourning for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules, and you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Nehemiah.
1: Chapter 1. As we continue in this series called the Gospel of Ezra and Nehemiah, as Bill has said, we are moving past Ezra and moving into Nehemiah chapter 1. Let me just give a really quick update where we're at and give you some dates that you can remember that are important so we can put this in perspective. If you remember quickly, 722 BC, the northern kingdom, ten tribes were invaded and conquered by the Assyrian army. They took the city of Samaria, which is the prominent city or the, the capital of the northern kingdom. Two tribes left to the south, didn't adhere to what God was saying. And beginning in 605, the Babylonians, they are the new world power. They took over after Assyria, attacked through, uh, by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the remaining tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem was. And then in 586, on the third attack, Babylon marches in Jerusalem and burns the city, the temple, the gates, the walls to the ground. Solomon's temple is no more. And this was due to their rebellion and their disobedience. And it was not without warning. God had told them through many prophets. But God also spoke a word of promise to Jeremiah and said after 70 years, while in exile in Babylon, you will be back in your city where we would meet. 70 years later, Right on cue, 539, the Persian Empire takes over, defeats Babylon, and in 538, King Cyrus issues a decree and allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Thousands return, they build an altar, they start rebuilding the temple, they're sacrificing there, and the building of the temple is on its way. But then a few short years later, The building stops. There's laziness. There's worldliness. And for something like 14 or 16 years, they did nothing. God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, and began to preach. And then in 516, the building is both completed and dedicated. And for you history people, that's after that 483 to 465 of the events of the book of Esther, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. So 516, rebuilding of the temple, completed and dedicated. Then far 58, 458, years later, 60 years later, a second return is heading from Babylon to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra. Chapter 7, Ezra shows up and he leads his second contingency to, to go back to Jerusalem for religious reform, calling people back to their God and back to the Holy Scriptures. Ezra was a priest, and the Bible says that he was a a scribe and a priest who set his heart to study the law of God and to do it, not just study, but to do it and to teach it to those in Jerusalem. Last week, chapters 8 and 9, and finished up the book, Pastor Ricky did a great job talking about how, how Ezra now is calling the people back to, to consecration, that they are to consecrate themselves, they are to be separate from sin and devoted to God. Sanctification, consecration is both a negative separation from sin and a positive and a devotion, a dedication to God. Ezra calls them on their compromise by marrying foreign women, if you remember from last week. We said it's not really about marrying outside your race, but it had to do with everything about marrying outside your faith which is reiterated in the New Testament. He went through that last week. So there is this, prol- uh, there's this propensity for these men in the Old Testament to marry these foreign women and then be caught up in the idolatry and in their, in their foreign worship of false gods and their worship uh, habits of their false worship. The people were to remain devoted to God. They were made and separated from sin, devoted to God, not for the purpose of leaving the world, but the purpose of having a unique identity, to remain devoted to God, to maintain her distinctive identity as God's people. Ezra was deeply troubled because the city, which was meant to be light on the hill, a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, had become an international joke. They responded to Ezra. That's how he ended Ezra's book. They responded to Ezra's call. They confessed their sins. That wasn't enough because they repented of their sins. They did what God through Ezra said they must do. And brothers and sisters, let me just remind us, that's, that's, that's the tension the people of God live in. The people of God live in this tension of living in this broken, fallen world that hates the light and yet sent into that same dark world to shine our lights, for being attractive to a world that is broken and fallen in darkness by the love of God and the gospel, the declaring and demonstrating the good news of Jesus, doing the work of Christ, not escaping the world, not emulating the world, but engaging the world for the cause and the glory of Jesus, which brings us to Nehemiah. Now remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and in what is called a Septuagint. If you ever see that in your Bible, LXX seventy, it's it's because the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to the Greek in, before Jesus' time. The fact Jesus would have had one, the apostles would have had a Septuagint as well as the Hebrew Scriptures. But in those Hebrew Scriptures, Septuagint, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It's a continuing of one story. And Nehemiah comes on the scene as we, as we turn the page from Ezra 9 through to Nehemiah 1, excuse me, Ezra 10 to Nehemiah 1. We turn this story and it's about 13 years later. It's around 4, it's the end of 446, the beginning of 445 BC. So Ezra closes 458. And Ezra opens, Nehemiah opens 13 years later. King Artaxerxes is still on the throne. If you remember Ezra chapter 7, it's the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And now we read in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 or verse 2 that it is the 20th year. So it's 13 years later. Just to put it in perspective, Nehemiah comes on the scene. It's been 90 years since the first exile. King Cyrus. Wrote and said, "Go back to Jerusalem now." Ninety years later, thirteen years after Ezra closes in chapter ten, Nehemiah comes on the scene, and just like Ezra, Nehemiah is broken into two neat packages. And if you're reading through, I hope you read through Nehemiah uh, this week over the next few weeks. Chapters one through six talk about the the restoration of the of the of the walls of Jerusalem. The restoration of the walls of Jerusalem, chapters uh, 8 through 13, that's 1 through 7, chapters 8 through 13 focuses on the revitalization of the people of God. So we have the restoration and the revitalization, two neat packages in the book of Nehemiah. So as we study chapter 1 together, there, we'll look at five things. Okay, The first thing we're going to see is Nehemiah's concern. His concern for his people. And then his concern drives him to the prayer. And we'll point out four things about Nehemiah's prayer. The first is his conviction. The next is his confession. Then his confidence and his commitment. So that's where we're at. We'll hit the last four rather quickly and we'll stay on the first one about his concern. So that's where we're going if you have your Bibles. Nehemiah chapter one, his concern. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, and Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. We're in the month of Chislev. You'd be like, so? Well, it's winter time. November, excuse me, December. Going into January, he's in the citadel of Susa. Susa was the winter capital, if you want to use, or the winter place, uh, a winter um, residence for the Persian kings. It was a little bit south of the southern, that a that, southern and northern place, sort of like people today, right? Gone for the so Aren't you tired? I don't want to take a side note, but I, I'm just... Aren't you tired of everybody posting pictures of sunny... South Carolina, or Florida, or San Diego. I just want to respond back like, give me a break, let alone... But anyway, so the king, he has two places, a little bit south... Where it's warmer for the winter, that's in that's in Susa. And then a northern place where he hangs out in a in, in the summer, it's called Iqbatana. It's not that far, but it's it's further north. It's a fortified city. It's actually, you could find it in modern Iran, right on the Iraq Iran border. Nehemiah, the name Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. And God is going to bring great comfort to his people through this man, Nehemiah. He is going to be greatly used of God. To gather the people of Judah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now you may think, what's so important about rebuilding walls? Are we going to be talking about church expansion? No, not today. And you may think, what's so important? Well, Nehemiah is a man that many theologians, many Bible teachers, many people through the centuries love to go to Nehemiah to teach people about leadership skills. He's a great leader. He's a great leader who has a vision. A vision is someone who sees what could be and he gathers and motivates people to join the cause. That, that's Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a guy who sees not only the future but encourages others to see it as well. And this book depicts a recovery from breakdown, from ruin, from despair to condition of peace and security. Restoration and usefulness. First thing we see here is Nehemiah inquires from his brother Hanani, verse, uh, in, in our passage this morning. Let me move this forward so everybody can read it with me. There we go. So, in the first, uh, verse of he uh, first two verses, he says to his, his brother Hanani. Now, his brother could mean his literal brother. It, Nehemiah could have had a brother named Hanani, or it could be his brother in the sense of being both being Jewish. We don't really know, but it's the only time he's mentioned in scripture. But he says to his brother, and he, and he asks his brother, asked his brother what was going on you know what is going on not only with with the people but with the city itself now the word ask means to inquire and demand an answer it was it wasn't like just a, a conversation over a cup of coffee nehemiah sees his brother and he wants to know there's an urgency what's going on with the people what's going on with the city He tells them, verse three, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now understand a couple of things here. Number one, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He probably, more than likely, has met some people and knows some people who were in Babylon with him and had gone to Jerusalem under Ezra it was only 13 years earlier. So there's probably there, there probably there, there are probably people there that, that Nehemiah knows. But he's never been there himself. And one of the things that we see right up front is that Nehemiah has a real familial love for his people. His concern is about his people. So right up front, it's hard for us to understand that. But it has great implications because Nehemiah, we learn at the end of, of, of chapter 1, he was the cupbearer to the king. So he had access to the king. He had access in the palace. He had a strong political standing. He was very close. He had it very well. Things were going very well for him in the city. So it's quite easy, I think, for Nehemiah, who has... The 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 access to the king who lives in the palace who has everything he could possibly want to imagine under his under his you know tutelage to be discerning like to be not caring or or to be uninvolved and really to be indifferent he's got everything he needs and you know unfortunately we live in a culture that has become more and more individualistic. And it's caring less about others and more about self. You know, more about our own well-being. And, and it's really sad. I mean, how often, and, and you don't, don't raise your hand, but how often are we that concerned? How often do we actually investigate with that tenacity what's going on in the life of others? In the brokenness and despair of others? Loving others, as Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't just love his God. Nehemiah loves God's people. And that's a sign of leadership. is a love for God and a love for people. Philippians 2, let each of you not look only at your own interests, but also at the interest of others. So we see Nehemiah caring about others. Secondly, we need to talk about walls. Because this is not about a, a cosmetic you know, uh, a pile of rubble that needs to be straightened out. It's not a cosmetic problem. Sort of like, I don't know, too many junk cars in your backyard. You know, there's a problem. Similar to a prison, they were, they were, the walls were there for protection. The walls were there to keep the city safe. Many times in antiquity, in ancient days, they would build the city as Jerusalem is up on a hill so that they can have watchmen who watch and see the enemy before they would attack. They would close the gate and secure the city. So the walls are very important scholars debate about how the walls were torn down, how they were burned to the ground. Um, we know back in 586, as I mentioned, the walls were burned down. You can read Second Chronicles and Second Kings. Uh, Babylon had marched in and burned the city to the ground. But what many scholars point to, and I, and I want to remind you, if you remember, and I know all of you do because you're following along with me, in Ezra chapter 4, when we were talking about the rebuilding of the temple, when we were talking about rebuilding of the temple, the author did a a parenthesis, a footnote. He was talking about how when they were building the temple, there was all kinds of opposition. And he said, oh, by the way, while we're on the story of opposition, on the uh, topic of opposition, this went on for years. And he looked down the hall of time and he, and he knew about Artaxerxes who would come and he would come against them as they were rebuilding of the walls. In chapter 4, verses 7-23, through it talks about Artaxerxes' letter that he sent to stop the building of the walls. So, I say all that to say this. The walls were burned down and in despair during Nehemiah's time. First, because of Babylon, 586 B.C. But I believe, and I think Scripture bears witness to the fact that after they were rebuilding the temple... After they had built an altar and rebuilt the temple, they began rebuilding the walls. And it was then that Artaxerxes, who found out that they were fortifying their city, sent the letter and said, stop. And it says in chapter 4, verse 23, this is what it says. When a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Raham and Shemaiah, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them to cease. So it is very possible, in fact, very probable, that they began rebuilding the walls after the destruction, before Nehemiah. But they were stopped by force, by force, and the walls were on their second, say, destruction and ruin, sometime around 450 B.C. And you can understand how King Artaxerxes might be a little nervous. You know, it's one thing to build a temple, go do your worship. It's another thing, which is said, the Ezra, were go right ahead, do it. But it's another thing to build a wall around the city. He must be thinking, hmm, what what are they trying to do? Who are they trying to keep out? Will I lose this piece of property? Will I lose the taxes and, and, you know, what's going on? So he sends this letter. And we'll look at why he may have changed his mind next week. Who are they defending himself It has to be his question. But I don't think Nehemiah's concern, and we'll see his, his appropriate response next week, was about rebuilding the walls to simply have a military presence, and, and we're, they were ready to to rebel against the king. That's not it's not just about protection, although that's part of it. It's about identity. It's about identity as being God's covenant people, which brings me to my third point: the destruction of the walls had to do with God's glory. So Nehemiah is concerned about the walls being down. Nehemiah knows that the walls are protective, there for protection. But Nehemiah, I think even more so, is broken because of God's glory. The walls and the city's destruction brought, look what it says, shame upon the people. You see that? Shame upon the people. That's interesting. So, This city, this place, this, this dwelling place of God where God's glory, the Shekinah glory comes down in the temple is being reduced to rubble. Now, now, let me make something perfectly clear. When we talk about God's glory, let me make something perfectly clear. God's glory is infinite weightiness, is incalculable worth, cannot be diminished by you. Right? There's nothing we can do to diminish or reduce God's glory. In and of himself. God is glorious and there's nothing you can do to change that. It's who he is. But there are many ways that we can diminish reflecting it to a broken world. There are many ways that we can reduce its brightness when we are representing him to a world that is in darkness. That's what we're talking about. Nehemiah knew that it was their sin and their rebellion that caused God's glory not to be reflected and represented well, when the walls were destroyed and they knew it, that the shame that was brought upon God's name was because of their sin. And the city was in ruins. It brought shame upon the name of their God, coupled with the, Nehemiah's love for God's people. It broke his heart and he weeps. Now, let me give you a couple applications before we move on. Number one, what we can learn from this first few verses Like Nehemiah, we cannot be so caught up in our personal worlds so that we are not loving, caring, and being concerned about others. It almost sounds as silly to say that, but I know I get caught up in my own world. And I'm the pastor. Number two, remember why the walls are burned down in the first place is because of sin and rebellion. And in the same way, many of us today, the walls around our life that protect us and defend us against the enemies are in rubble, in ruins. The gates are like access into your life and and they're broken down and they're in ruin. Maybe due to pain and hurt. Maybe it's something that you haven't even done. Someone has done it to you. Maybe it's because of the pain to hurt your life because of the dumb decisions and the bad decisions that you have made in your life and you feel defenseless and you feel hopeless. Maybe you're openly vulnerable because of bad decisions. But let me tell you, the story of Nehemiah is about restoration. The story of Nehemiah is about rebuilding God's people. It's a book of hope. It's a book of hope. Number three, the walls being destroyed have deep application for our identity. There's something missing in God's people when the walls are down. There's no greater defense... When the walls are down and you're in ruins, there's no greater defense against the enemy's schemes, against the enemy's attacks, even against your own guilt and shame of things you have done than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater opportunity for the glory of God to shine in your life than the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Christ, through the gospel, becomes our ultimate treasure, our greatest weapon against failure and shame is our new identity in Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Christ is enough, when we are clinging and trusting to Christ alone, seeking His face, confessing and repenting of sin, walls in our lives can be repaired and protection can be won. We we live we live in a silly age where we are constantly telling our children, don't feel bad. We're doing everything we can so that they don't feel the weight of decisions. And it, and it rolls over into adulthood. Oh, well, I'm here to tell you two things. One is, if you sin and you do bad, you should feel bad. It's okay. But the difference between despair and the gospel is, one will drive you to despair as you look at yourself and believe the enemy's lies that you're no good, you'll never be out of anything, look at everybody else. That's not God, that's Satan. What God wants to do is show you and reveal to you the guilt of your sin to drive you to the cross, to the gospel, to cling to Jesus, to receive His forgiveness, who died for all our sins, who bore the Father's wrath for all our sins, who became atoning sacrifice for all our sins. It is the Spirit of God's job to convict us of our sin and to drive us to Jesus. That's our new identity. Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, where his children were in his kingdom. In whom Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Here we see Nehemiah assessing the situation with a broken heart, that's where it all begins. And part of it had to do with the complacency, I think, living in ruins. The truth is, listen, nothing ever is gonna happen in your life unless we confess unless we acknowledge, unless we see with concern the brokenness and despair of our lives and the lives of others and drives us to the gospel, drives us to Christ. Listen, Nehemiah was honest and Nehemiah's heart was broken and look what it did. He had a broken heart and it brought him to the place of a bowed knee. Look at verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Prayer was a priority. We're going to see that in this book. Over and over. I think 10 prayers are recorded in Nehemiah. Just 13 chapters. Alistair Begg says, If our prayer is meager, it is because we regard it as something supplemental rather than something that is fundamental. And let me tell you, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. That's convicting for me. I'd rather read. I'll be honest. I need to remind myself of the discipline of prayer. Now, if I was a cupbearer to the king, which means I drank of the wine and ate of the food so that the king would live and if anything, I would die, I'd be a man of prayer too. (laughs) Right? So, he's the cupbearer, which means he drinks the wine, he eats the food, So that, which is cool. I'll be eating all day long, which is fine for me. But the king would watch and see whether I didn't keel over or not. So I'd be praying, Lord, please let there not be poison in this food. But let me ask us, I mean, we have to ask this question, are we a people of prayer? Are we gathering community groups and praying for one another, praying for the church? Are we gathering with our wives and children and praying? Are we, are we praying as a church, as a people? On a study of Nehemiah, Cyril Barber writes this, he said, the reason why, this is basically the reason why people don't pray. He says, the self-sufficient will not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. But a true leader is one who is not self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and self-righteous. On the contrary, he knows his need and he's ready to humble himself before the one, the only one, who is sufficient for it all. End quote. That's Nehemiah. According to chapter 2, verse 1, Nehemiah prayed and fasted for almost four months. Four months before going to the king. Nehemiah was not self-sufficient, self-satisfied, or self-righteous man. He was a man of prayer. He was humbly looking at the situation. He was honest and humble, and then he wept. And let's be honest. There's not a lot of us, and I include me, weeping over despair, destruction, sin of our own lives or as we look at the lives of those around us, right? Warren Worsby says, what makes people laugh or weep, listen, what makes people laugh or weep is often an indication of their character. Have you ever been so broken about your situation, your sin and your despair that you weep? If you have or you will, let it be a place of about knee and crying out to our God, crying out to our God. Abraham Lincoln said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. Why is it that we're not? Why is it that Lou is not? distressed over my own sin over the despair looking out and seeing the faces of the people that I know and love who are destined for hell without Christ why could it be pride could I Could I feel like I'm, I'm doing this on my own I can handle this by myself I don't need anyone's help could it be that the accuser is getting busy showing me and telling me and reminding me of my past failures and that everyone else is okay but me Not Nehemiah. He saw the situation. He saw the reality of it. He saw the truth of his despair and the brokenness. And he wept and he went to God in prayer. Who alone is the one who can give him help in the time of trouble. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? You know the words, family. My help comes from the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. Four months, not only prayed and wept, but he fasted. Some of you may not know what fasting means. Most of the time in scripture, fasting is, is, is about, um, saying no to food. It, it's a time when we are seeking the face of God, something very important. There's a, a devotion. There's a, there's a, there's a, a centrality. There's a, a drive where we focus our attention, and many times prayer and fasting go together in Scripture. We're saying no to food, we're saying uh, no to something to eat, and as we deplete our body, as we say no, we're we're devoted, we're looking, we're hearing from God, we're seeking God's face. We're demonstrating to ourselves and to God that our relationship with Him is important, I need to hear from you. That's what we see in Scripture. It gives a new perspective, there's a new reliance upon our God. Fasting usually is food, as I said, but sometimes you give up other things. What is it that you can give up that will drive you to the place of surrender? That would drive you to the place of devotion, that will drive you to the place of, of 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 getting everything about you centered upon what God wants to say to you, upon what God wants to say to you. Do you think one last thing? Do you think that Nehemiah had no idea, never been to Jerusalem? Do you think Nehemiah had no idea what was going on there? That he, that he never heard anything about the possibility of what's going on in Jerusalem? I wonder. Well, maybe, just maybe, he knew, he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe, just maybe, at this point, God the Holy Spirit is opening up Nehemiah's heart, is opening up Nehemiah's spirit, is opening up Nehemiah's mind, to the missionary heart of Christ. Maybe, just maybe, he is about to see things from God's perspective. Now, we live in a region that's been voted number one post-city in America. That means we are no less bankrupt, no less destroyed and confused than the city of Jerusalem here in this area. And here lies part of the problem. We are so caught up, we are so inclined by by our lives and the, the everyday activity of our lives that we don't see. It's normal for us to see. The, I mean, when I read that, I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But it didn't be like, oh my word, we got work to do. We have a mission to declare. We have a gospel to demonstrate. There's an urgency. Number one post city, Christian, Christian post city in America is Albany. Did it drive us to a place of Use me, Lord. Weeping, crying, brokenness of the world around us. We need the eyes of Christ. We need to see the burden. We've come so accustomed to the brokenness and the spiritual bankruptcy and the devastation that I think God needs to stir our heart to see the heart of Jesus, to see the heart of the missionary heart of Christ. It bothered Nehemiah. I got to ask myself this question When was the last time I was broken? over those who are separated from Christ. When was the last time I've been broken about the habits and and struggles that I face? It was a heartfelt prayer. And you know what? This is not something you can go home. I I don't think you can. Maybe you can, but I can't. All of a sudden go home. Okay, I'm going to start crying right now. The pastor said, your heart should be broken, so I'm going to go home and stop crying. Get the tissues. But it can be this. I can go home and say, Lord, give me a heart. Right? Amen? Lord, give me a heart. Lord, pour out your spirit. Let me see the missionary heart of Christ. Let me see the destruction and despair of the people around me. Let me be involved in your mission. So he's broken. He's in despair. He sees his concern. And there are four things about his prayer. Again, we're going to hit these. Go out in your community groups. In the next two weeks, you can talk about these four things about his, his prayer. Number one. When Nehemiah prays, there is a strong conviction. Look what it says in verse 4. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Notice, notice, where did Nehemiah begin? Not with circumstances, Oh Lord, look what's going on. Oh Lord, are you asleep? Oh Lord, what, 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 you know, are you allowing? He starts with God. He begins with God. He begins with with the praise of God, with the conviction that God is who God is. He's the God of heaven. Look what it says. He's the awesome God, which is a great song. The awesome God. He's the awe-inspiring God. What? Nehemiah is doing here is affirming the sovereignty of God. When things go bad, and things do go bad, and there is distress, and there is trouble, and there is, uh, you know, distress in your life or despair, one of the things you see over and over in scriptures is people affirming the sovereignty of God. Acts chapter 4, we studied that last year. Churches in, in, in persecution, the first prayer, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, we're in persecution. Sovereign Lord, you're, you're, you have made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it is you are creator. You are the sovereign one. The truth is that no matter the difficulty, listen, family, no matter the distress, no matter the despair, God is in control. God is in control. And sometimes, you know, uh, uh, it is in times of distress and trials that we don't come to him. Again, I've talked about this before, this open theology that God doesn't know the future. He knows every possibility of the future is not only unbiblical, it's also very unhelpful. It's not taught in Scripture. The sovereignty and providence of God, how he's working all things together for the good, for those who love him or called according to his purpose, may be a mystery. But it should be a comfort. It should be a comfort. Knowing, believing, trusting that God is the sovereign Lord and your loving Father should bring comfort to your soul. Even in times of distress, especially in times of distress, that nothing can happen, nothing has happened that's apart from his good, holy, wise purposes that he has declared and determined before the foundations of the world. Nehemiah begins his prayer with praise about the conviction about God's character. Now, as we see this, look at verse 4 and 5 again. This does not change who God is. Amen? God is sovereign. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What this is doing is bringing Nehemiah to the place where he needs to be. Oh, Lord, you're awesome, you're powerful, you are sovereign. That's a great place to begin. That's a great place to begin. That's the only place to begin. And it brings his heart into that, to the glorious presence, the weightiness, the incalculable worth, and the, and the supremacy of who God is. That's a great way to start a prayer. Sometimes we're reluctant to pray because we're we're confused about the character of God. Not Nehemiah. He was convicted about God's greatness. Look what he says. He even says, Lord, you are a covenant keeping God. Your steadfast love, that's that word has said in the Hebrew. It talks about the the loving covenant of God. That God's in loving, it really, really means loyal love, a loyalty of love. It's about God's mercy. Look what it says also. Second condition, keeping the covenant is that God's people obey him. See that? The great and awesome God keeps his covenant. He keeps his steadfast love, that loyal love, that covenantal love with those who love him and keep his commandments. When Nehemiah is showing and and revealing to us that this covenantal loyal love was to be reciprocal. The mention of that covenant is about God's faithfulness and our responsibility, our obligations to God's love that we are to respond and be reciprocal and love him back. And whenever we're dealing with the law of God, whenever we're dealing with the moral standard of God, listen, remember, always remember, family, that salvation, redemption, deliverance took place before the law was given. Remember that. God called the people to himself and delivered him from bondage and redemption and redeemed them and brought him out of Egypt and into the land, then gave them the law. Even in the old New Testament, there are commands that we ought to follow as Christians. Right? Amen? There are things that we ought to do. But we're never commanded to obey in order to receive God's forgiveness, His love and acceptance. We're always commanded to obey because of God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness in the gospel. Our love and obedience do not merit His love, but they are evidences. Let me say it again. Our love and obedience do not merit His love. But they are evidence that we are indeed the objects of his grace. Even Nehemiah is reminded about the law. And you know what's so cool about this? Is that Nehemiah is convicted about who God is. He talks about that covenantal language of love and blessing and that unfailing love that God has for us. He says it's reciprocal, but he also goes on to say, it's not about you. It's, if, if God's covenant was about you obeying and therefore that covenant staying secure, we'd all be lost, wouldn't we not? Scripture's loaded with that. Because look what he says next. He goes from his conviction to his confession. Verse six. <laughs> oh, Lord, be attentive to our ears, to your ears and your eyes. May they be open to the prayer of your servant. I'm praying before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing that we have not kept the covenant. We have not obeyed you completely. We confess the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I. My Father's house have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly because you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that commanded your servants more. Well, we have done it. We haven't done it. Where would we be without confession, family? Nehemiah was a realist. In his assessment of the way things were going, he quickly realized that at the heart of things was not organization, although he brings it, was not leadership, although he has it, was not resources, and he brings that too. What was needed first and foremost was the confession of sin. He, like Ezra, identifies himself With the Jews, look at who it says, look at the pronouns, we, verse 6, we have acted, verse 7. He identifies with that generation, that's what he's saying, that it is about us. I'm not looking back and I'm not blaming my ancestors, I'm not pointing the fingers at everyone before me. I am joining them in their sin. I am part of that family, I am part of that rebellion. And, And that's so important. Because if we're going to have rebuild, we're going to be rebuilding, we're going to be restoring foundations, it has to be on confession and repentance. And family, I was thinking about that because we live in such a different culture. Hey, John, you know what? Open up those double doors for me. Will you get some air? Why is it, how can I apply this? How can we apply the fact that Nehemiah and Ezra both confessed their sins corporately? What does that mean for you today? What does that mean for me today? What does that change? You know what? There's a, there's a couple of things I came up with. Number one, when we do that, when we don't blame and we are joined our, our sins and theirs and, and and the sins of our ancestors together, there's a sense that we cannot judge them for their sins. That we're not going to judge them and look at them and, and say, you know what, you're capable of that. I'm not. See what that's not what Nehemiah does. Robert Murray, uh, McShane, he's a pastor of Scotland, said this, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. You know what Nehemiah is doing? Nehemiah is saying, you know what? They've sinned, they've done all this, but you know what? I would have been in there doing it with them. There's something about that that knocks us down off the pedestal, does it not? There's something about saying, you know what? I'm capable too. All of a sudden, you know what? You're not high and, and, and lofty and lifted up high. All of a sudden, now you're on that same place. Also, you know what? Doing that also helps us never forget. Never forget the grace of God. It's so easy to point and blame and look at other people's sins and say, I'm, oh, you did that, I would never do it. You know what? Nehemiah says, you know what? It's all about grace. It's all about grace. It reminds me of of a parable Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He says, yeah, I, tell this Pharisee be, I tell this story because there were some people who trusted in themselves. That's why he tells the parable. And the parable goes on to say that the two men went up to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, it says, literally by himself, says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, but I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Of all that I get. If you count them, this five times. He said, I. I this, I that, I this, I that, I this, I that. Yet the tax collector couldn't even look up. He beats his chest. God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, a, a sinner. You see, the, con- you see the, the continuity? Nehemiah begins with God. This tax collector says, God. First, first thing I have nothing to offer. God, he says, be merciful to me. Like Nehemiah, it begins with God. He speaks of His mercy, and then he speaks of the only thing he can bring to the table is sin. God, be merciful. I'm a sinner. That's the prayer of a leader. And who went away justified? Jesus says, not the Pharisee. The tax collector goes away justified. He's justified. He's made right with God because he's trusting in God's mercy upon him not his own righteousness. Nehemiah makes no excuse. Nehemiah does not point to the past. Nehemiah joins his ancestry and says, I'm capable, I'm culpable, it is our sin. That's his confession. Next, his confidence, verse 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. Verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are the uttermost part of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Now, whenever you see in Scripture, remember, O oh Lord. It's not like God's going, oh, man, let me look that up. I'm not really sure. I, I want to make sure you're right. I know you tell me to remember, but I'm not really sure. It, it's just a way uh, for, for someone to cry out for God to intervene on their behalf. And what he's talking about is Deuteronomy. The promise and curses that were given in the Mosaic law. It contains warning. And he's saying, you know what? You warned us, you judged us, and you know what? We're scattered. We were, that's true. But Lord, you're a promise-keeping God. You're a covenant-keeping God. You made that promise. We were scattered. You judged us, you disciplined us. But you did say that if we return to you, You're going to restore us. So, Lord, we've done the first part. I'm waiting for the second part. That's what he's saying. He's saying, God, I trust you in your word. You made a promise. You literally, pardon my, my term, but you literally spanked us and disciplined us and sent us into exile, just like you said. But your word also says you will literally take us out of exile and bring us back to the land of promise. Lord, I'm trusting in your word. I'm confident in and your faithfulness of what your word tells us. Okay, and, and and family, let me tell you: the only confidence we have that God forgives, confess sin, that God restores us, that God is working for us, that God will forgive us and bring us into His presence and to intimacy with again is His word. First John one nine. I say it all the time: if we confess our sins. He is faithful. If we confess our sins, I am faithful, I'm not. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. And He is just. Am I just? I'm not just. I'm not faithful, I'm not just. If I confess my sins, He is faithful, He is just. And He will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I stand on that promise. Right? The the prodigal son, we know the story of the two sons. He comes to his senses. What's he do? He said, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to admit my failure. I'm going to confess my sins. And he goes home and God's, listen, the picture of God waiting for his son, wraps him up in a robe, puts a ring on his finger, and brings him back to full sonship. Do do you see what's happening here? Do you see the progression in Nehemiah's prayer? He had deep concerns about the problem and the despair and shame of his people, and it leads him to brokenness. And while he's weeping and confessing and fasting, he, he, he leans and he trusts and he relies upon the character of his God. And as he focused on his character and, and who he is, the sovereign Lord, he focuses on the covenant-keeping greatness and awesomeness of God. He's motivated, like Isaiah 6, to confess his sin and to admit his failures and the failures of others. you know Isaiah 6? Isaiah... Sees the glory. You know the story. He goes unto the temple. He sees the glory of God. He says what? I am unclean. I am undone. And what? I'm among the people who are unclean. The, Isaiah does the same thing. So there's confidence. There's faithfulness. Some of you as Christians, you were raised, and maybe as you were raised as a Christian, as a young person, uh, you were taught ACTS as an acronym for prayer. A-C-T-S. Everybody hear from that? Anybody? All right. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and... Supplication. That's Nehemiah's prayer. Adoration. Lord God, awesome and mighty God, I confess my sins to you. Right? I'm thankful that you keep your covenantal promises. Bring us back. Show us. And then supplication. He makes a commitment. Look at verse 11. Oh Lord, I'm at the end of my prayer. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. To the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give me success to your servant, and, and grant him, all right, here's my petition, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The king, obviously, the man is obviously King Xerxes. Someone once said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. And I've said this a thousand times, I will say it to my last dying breath, God is sovereign, man is responsible. We are called to respond. And here we see Nehemiah saying, you know what? Work needs to be done. There is despair. But Lord, give me, grant me mercy and grace from the king and success in what you're doing. You know, and that, that's really the bottom line. We could pray and we should. We should begin with prayer. We should begin with fasting. We, we should begin with concern. But we can't stay there. We have to move on. We'll see Nehemiah move on. There's a time to press on. There's a time to move on. There's a time to go and be committed to the well-being of God's glory and God's people, and the true measure of our concern over brokenness and despair is our willingness, our ability, and willingness to commit to get involved. And let's not let's not confuse success and treasures, or or I should say success and rewards. Okay, success and reward. Let's not get them mixed up. Reward is something given or received in return for services. Success, according to Scripture, is being faithful to God, to do and to be a part of what God is doing and to fulfill your calling, whatever that may be. There's a difference. And Nehemiah is praying and saying, Lord, you're sovereign, you're good. Give me, your servant, mercy in the sight of this man. You know, that is a prayer of scripture too. Do you know that? Do you know that Nehemiah is flowing, flowing scripture from his heart? Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord turns it wherever he wills. Lord, the king is not over me. Ultimately, you are king. So I'm going to go before the, for the cup of the king, uh, exerces, but you, the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler, I come to you first. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Uh, make it happen through the work of your servant and the king, right? Who has final say? God does. Nehemiah didn't pray. You know what? Send somebody else, Lord. Raise up someone. No, Nehemiah said, here I am. Send me. So are we willing? Let me ask this question. Are we willing to be broken? Are we willing to pray for brokenness as we look at people around us? Remember, family, listen, people are not our enemy. People are our mission. People are not our enemy. People are our mission. Satan and demons are our enemy. And we, like Nehemiah, should begin with prayer, but we need to be humbly and truthfully committed to, to serve God, to live on mission, to love God, to love God's people, and to move forward so that they would see the glory of Jesus in a demonstration and declaration of the gospel, loving people. They're in bondage. So I have to ask myself this question and i ask you this question. Are our hearts broken? Are our heart- eyes wet? Heartbroken, wet eyes, bowed head, and and lips willing to to declare, to to show the world and say, Lord, I'm committed to your mission. I'm committed to declaring and demonstrating the gospel. The world is broken. People are dying without Christ. People are going to spend eternity in hell. And Lord, I love them. I care about them. Make a way. Make it happen. I pray, Lord, make it happen. Starts today. Now listen carefully as we close. Nehemiah wept, was broken, was broken, at the despair of Jerusalem. Nehemiah wept over the broken conditions of Jerusalem, but Nehemiah is not the hero in this story. Jesus is a true and better Nehemiah. You see, centuries later, as Jesus himself was approaching Jerusalem, he came by the Mount of Olives, a ridge a little more than a mile long east of the city. It rises 2,700 feet, and you have this magnificent and panoramic view of Jerusalem. It was the first Palm Sunday, and as he approaches the city, and there are thousands of people along the the road shouting and and praising and, and singing, Hosanna, Jesus looks out over the panor- this panoramic view at the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives to, to the dome, and he starts to what? Cry and weep out loud. Different weep than it was at Lazarus. That was an inner weep. He breaks and began to weep over the city. Jesus takes one look at Jerusalem, sees their sin, sees their rebellion, sees their rejection of the Messiah, and weeps over the city. Jesus comes loving us, weeping over our sin, over our lost condition. Now, Jesus did not weep over his own sin. He had none. But over the sins of others. And he sees the sin, the rebellion. He sees the need for forgiveness, the need for redemption, the need for a renewed people. Which brings us to our last verse, verse 10. Nehemiah says, They are your servants, O Lord, they are your people, O Lord, the ones whom you, O Lord, have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah says to the Lord, these people, even in their sin, even in their re- uh, rebellion, are the people that are yours, that your service, that to your people. You've redeemed them with a the strong hand. Redemption is a very important passage, a, a word in Scripture. It talks about redeeming something back or a slave with a price For their freedom. It talks about redeeming or buying back the firstborn with a sacrifice. Redemption is synonymous for liberate to be to be liberated, to be freed, to be rescued. And here, look what Nehemiah is doing. He's comparing the first Exodus with Moses when they when they were were brought out of Egypt in slavery, which which points to sin and captivity. And he says, This exodus and this exodus, this is your work. This is what you're doing. You're rescuing us. You know, the Jewish people, that first exodus, when they were brought out of Egypt, was a defining moment, was their identity as God's people. And Nehemiah compares that first exodus to this exodus. But let me tell you, the New Testament doesn't point to a comparison, but to its fulfillment. Jude chapter 5. Jude, the half-brother of James, the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. This is what he says about Exodus. Now I want to remind you, although you once already knew, or you once fully knew it, that Jesus is the one who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Do you see that? Ultimately, the first Exodus, the second Exodus, all Exodus, point to the ultimate Redeemer. So yes, it's true, God raised up Moses. God used him as a human uh, vessel to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. Yes, God used Ezra, God used Nehemiah to rebuild this temple, to rebuild the walls. But Jesus, the new and glorious redeemer, mediator, personally redeemed his people, delivered his people from sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. Jesus' work of redemption is greater than that of the Exodus. And he is the one Nehemiah points to. Its glory far surpasses Moses. Its glory far surpasses all Exodus and it points to the redemption in which Jesus Christ will offer himself up as an atoning sacrifice. So Nehemiah, Jesus is a greater Nehemiah. Nehemiah was sent to a people in distress to help them secure the city. Nehemiah, went to a people not only to secure the city, but to reclaim the glory of God. But the Father sent the Son into the world to secure our salvation. And according to Second Corinthians 4, he is the glory of God. Not to secure a city, but to secure our salvation. And the crucial difference between Moses and the Exodus, the one Nehemiah is pointing to, is that Moses was God's servant. Jesus is God's only eternal son who died in atoning sacrifice securing for us redemption, cleansing us and washing us and forgiving us of our sins. You see, the exodus from Egypt and Babylonia Babylon only points to and is a foreshadow to the redemption that Jesus Christ offers to you and to I. Nehemiah's comparison, Jesus is the ultimate one. Jesus is the better and greater Nehemiah. So let me ask you, finally, are you broken about sin? Are you willing to pray, God, break me over my sin? Lord, I pray that you give me a heart for people who don't know you. Will you give me a heart to serve, to love, to care for and to see the distress of others, to move me, to open my mouth, to talk about Jesus and to love them with my, whatever means I have available to love them. Will you you do that? Will you pray with me that God will give us an opportunity and give us a heart for the brokenness of our own lives and the brokenness of the people around us? Number two. Number three. Will you pray and commit yourself to God's mission? Brokenness over your sin, brokenness over despair of the world around us. Are you willing to be committed to God's mission of declaring and demonstrating gospel while clinging to the one Redeemer who the Bible says Gave his life so that we can have life. That's the question. As we continue to grow as a church, as we continue to move in this community, as we continue to to be salt and light, we need to have that heart, family. We need to have that heart. We need to be willing to be broken and be willing to love, be willing to see the despair, and be willing to live on mission with Jesus. He has a lot of people in this community that he loves and redeemed. And he's going to use you if you're willing and committed to being used. Father, thank you for Nehemiah. And Father, thank you for his strength and his courage. Thank you for his honesty and humility. Uh, thank you for his, his just keen sense of, of, of honing in in prayer on, on who you are and all that you have done. But most importantly, thank you that Nehemiah points us to our great God and Savior Jesus. Who willingly left, Philippians 2 tells us, the glories of heaven to come into this broken, broken, dark world, to live among us as a baby, to rise to to be to be raised as a young man, to live a perfect life, to not commit a single sin, but offer himself as a sin offering, and then rise three days later. The feeding and have a victory over sin, the power of sin, and someday the presence of it. And Father, although we can't do that, only Jesus can. But we can take up His mission. Just as He says, the Father sends me, I send you. So God, I pray that we be a church who loves you, who loves people, who sees the destruction, who are willing to be committed to the cause. And that cause is no no greater cause than the gospel. So help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.